everyone. Welcome to Second Rail, the Second Rail Education Podcast. I have as a guest today an old friend who is a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley. His name is Andy Rothstein. And of all the people I know, he has one of the most broad-based educations, East Coast, West Coast, North and South in the United States of anyone I know. And I thought I'd have him on. I've been wanting to have him on for a while. And I'm really excited to have the chance to talk with him about a whole bunch of things, including uh, education and especially uh, graduate school and the future of science and the future of science education. So Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're here. So yeah. let's dive right in. Start okay. by giving me the kind of Twitter feed version of your education. No, you don't have to be that short, but give me a summary of where you've been and what you've done. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, pretty urban environment, but I was exposed to different outdoor education, outdoor influences from my father. And it sort of sparked my interest in my in what I wanted to do as a career. And so I sort of on my own sought out my undergrad in the environment and natural resources. And I did an undergraduate education at University of Vermont for four years. And towards the tail end of my time there, I really wanted to, you know, have the, I had this idealistic view of I wanted to change the world. I decided to go get some graduate work um, at Western Washington University, where the thing that was most interesting to me was finding science-based tools that we can be applied to addressing some of the most pressing global change issues for the environment. So I went to Western Washington and I learned genetics with a tailored towards conservation and wildlife biology. So more focused on wild populations of species. I did a very fun and exciting project out in Vancouver Island where we wanted to forensically track harbor seals via their poop. Cool. So we would go out and we would sample with Q-tips on their poop to sort of identify, just like you would at a crime scene, the perpetrators of the harbor seals at the end goal of what they ate. So we were really interested of what their diet looked like and what their impact was on salmon populations, which were declining in the Pacific Northwest. And so that skill set really broadened my abilities to see what I could do for different types of topics. How can I use my skill sets to address new questions? And that's what brought me to Berkeley. And I work on emerging wildlife diseases using genetics. So the main one that I work on, which sort of had this, has had some, some press of recent, is the massive decline of amphibians worldwide. 40% of amphibians worldwide are in decline. And one of the main drivers of that decline is a infectious disease called Atrachochytrium dendropatitis, or the amphibian chytrid fungus. It's a fungal disease, and, and it's on every continent in the world. And so we want to look at how do animals and how do populations respond to emerging diseases in ever-changing environment? So that's where I'm at now. And sort of the ultimate goal is to use these types of skills to continue to ask those kinds of questions. When we're faced with something emerging because of a changing environment, specifically now disease, how can we use our tools, the technologies at hand to sort of address those questions? So talk a little bit about how you connected genetics in particular. Mm -hmm. What led that to that link from the interest in global change? Because, you know, I'm always thinking about climate change and maybe environmental change coming in terms of temperatures yeah, and, yeah. and air flows and atmospheric changes. How does that break down to genetics? I would say there's two main reasons. One is that we've developed 
genetics allows us to sort of tell us what's there, right? We all have a genetic fingerprint and every animal and every living thing leaves DNA out in the environment. And so with the advent of technologies, we can now sample the world looking just for DNA to see what's there. So we have a really good global monitoring or global census of what's, what's there. And if you take it into the analogy of going into your doctor's office, you want to go into your doctor's office, you want to ask, you know, am I healthy or am I not healthy? And we want to ask those same questions in our ecosystems, in our environment. And one of the main tools that medical biologists have used forever is genetics to, to sort of address whether or not you're predisposed to a certain condition or whether or not we can see who you are by, you know, like, again, a crime scene, for instance. And so we can apply those tools that have been used for decades in the biomedical field and now apply it to the environment. How can we say what's there and how healthy is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that... Okay, so what's the answer? <laughs> so how healthy are well, we? Well, you know, most of the time people will say it's doom and gloom, but I, for me, it's more, right. of a, it's more of a monitoring tool. We have preventative means now. We have the technologies to be more preventative in the way that we see things changing. The main part of that is just mitigation. How can we use genetics and how can we use the tools at hand to mitigate those changes? Because we're going to face changes and things are going to adapt and we're going to have to deal with it from a more broad perspective. Genetics, for me, has been this, this main tool for me to actually access that information. I remember when I was getting my MBA, one of the most shocking moments for me was when I had a classmate who, for lack of a better change, he was kind of an anti-environmentalist. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting at lunch with him and I forget where it was, if it was in yeah. the Gleacher Center at the University of Chicago in Chicago or somewhere, but we're sitting there. He's an Australian guy. I said something about climate change off the cuff or just casually. And he's like, well, you know, he goes, look. If it happens, it happens. We'll just build a big machine at the North Pole and pump out like oxygen or carbon dioxide or something. Despite the fact that I didn't really believe him, it was this incredibly positive attitude towards how we can fix things. Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, how much do you feel, I get that you're, you know, it's it's not all doom and gloom. I guess I'm wondering, like, where does this fit into, where does what you're doing fit into kind of the big picture of what maybe, I don't know, people should know about what's happening with monitoring and what's happening with what we know the earth is doing and can do. I do have a focus on disease. So I, I do care about emerging diseases in okay. the face of changing environments and our ability to sort of monitor or use surveillance tools in our environment to expect what's coming. And so there was a study that came out this week that showed that climate models predict that mosquitoes that harbor neglected tropical diseases are going to hit now a billion people on the planet within the next 50 years. So places like Alaska might end up having dengue fever or something like that, which is pretty drastic to think about. Got it. You know, unheard of. And so unheard of. Yeah, right. If that's what we're faced with, we have to be able to say, we're not just going to wait till it hits us. We're not just going to wait for a billion people to all of a sudden be hit with dengue fever. We can take a more proactive approach to it and say, how can we see it coming and start using the tools that we already know at a very fine scale when you go into a doctor's office and when biomedical scientists try to come up with a cure for X, how can we see that it's already there? We have the ability to take Mm -hmm. a a sample of water Mm -hmm. where there's no humans around and tell you if there's pathogens there. I mean, that gives you a front leading edge to saying it's here or it's not here. And how can we mitigate that? How can we manage that? Manage outbreaks that are mm-hmm. inevitably going to happen. Integrating those technologies into the way that we manage things as humans on this planet, whether that be our you know, food resources, our natural resources, or things like diseases and otherwise that are going to affect us as people, 
the way that we live, the services that the ecosystem provides to us. We have a way to leverage that. We can use technology to our advantage in that sense. Give me an example of like the coolest digital tool you guys have got or the coolest tool, period, maybe. For me, the coolest tool is our ability to get environmental DNA. Right. I can go and take a backpack and it constantly filters water as I move through uh, a transect through the through you know the streams. And I'm intaking water and filtering out DNA and then in real time identifying what's there. Wow. Fantastic. So I can tell you that's everything from the microbes that live there all the way up to a large mammal like a bear that might have been in the in the stream. Wow. And that's a minuscule amount of DNA. So we can do that, but I can also do something for, like I said, pathogen detection. So I can identify if there's a pathogen in those waters. So let's say for stormwater, for instance. So the EPA will go out and they will take stormwater and they'll plate it. Or they'll put it on a little Petri dish and they'll see if there's something that grows and they'll, they'll identify whether there's E. coli, fecal wow. coliform, right? Incredible. That's the old way of doing things now. Now I can wow. say not only is it this E. coli, there's hundreds of strains of E. coli, only a handful are pathogenic, only a handful actually make mm -hmm. people sick. And so I can say it's this E. coli strain and I can tell you where it came from. I can source it back to where it came from. Wow. So it's not just a broad base. We've had a coarse grain filter on what was going on and now we have this really fine scale filter. So after a study like the one about whatever dengue in Alaska or whatever mm -hmm. coming out is coming out with the mosquitoes, that type of study is also based in kind of a genetic discovery or is that based in something else? And then maybe there's a whole series of scientists around the world uh, attacking the problem in different ways. Yeah, those are modeling. So those are, you know, crunching the numbers, Got really it. taking taking what's the, the expected spread of temperatures and where the distribution of mosquitoes may be. So just presence and absence of mosquitoes in certain localities. But the subsequent next step to that is going to probably be going out and getting real-time samples and seeing if those samples have a pathogen in it or going out and trying to find the, where those mosquitoes populations are or for, for whatever reason. So for me, it, it's a hammer. It's a, it's a tool that's in my tool belt. Yep. But as a practitioner, I'm thinking more broadly about what we can do. So that means collaborating with other people, epidemiologists, conservation managers, natural on the ground managers, public health practitioners. We can use all of our tools to sort of address these from a holistic point of view. So talk about that a little bit. Talk about the, the way that you partner or team or collaborate with other people in, I assume, other universities, the public sector and agencies and private sector and tech companies, I assume, are involved. Yeah. What does that look like and how does that work and does it work well and what could be better? Right now, you can look at the model, again, biomedical sciences, where academics sort of come up with these ideas and they think that they might have a technology and then they sort of build this incubated technology that get, might get funded from outside private partners. And then there's obviously large government organizations that are sort of trained to deal with this on the ground. They're managers, they're applied people that, that work with that. And so from an if you're an academic researcher, partnering with those to sort of say, what, what's the questions that matter to you most? What questions, what are the things that are most pressing for you as practitioners that you want to get information on? And so for the context of my project that I'm working on right now, mm -hmm. I work on a frog amphibian species in California that's state and federally listed endangered. So there's every major government agency that has land basically is in the room for the conversations mm -hmm. of what they're going to do to restore the species. Hmm. The Endangered Species Act, once you put a species or you list a species as endangered, mm -hmm. it 
all of a sudden starts these walls of all mm-hmm. these things that have to happen. So these mm-hmm. people, their job is to say, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is moving frogs around, making sure that they can try to bolster the available populations there, try to give these populations viability. Mm-hmm. They look for people to to do research on that. And, and I partner with those agencies and I walk in the room and I say, well, you know, what's the most pressing issue for you guys right now? What's what's going to help you the most? Does that frog exist outside of the U.S. or outside of California? And do the partnerships extend beyond, I don't know, the national boundaries or state boundaries? Yeah. I mean, for me, my frog only lives in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Got it. Okay. Okay. But a global perspective, like there's many agencies that will work work with. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife is definitely one that works internationally with trade of wildlife and, and how things are operating at, a, at an international scale. And so yeah. there's tiers to how these things are, are managed. And there's different collaborations with university agencies and government agencies to sort of address these problems at hand. Yeah. For me, I, I pursued graduate education for those partnerships. So not everyone has that experience in graduate school. For, sure. You're for bringing the, it to the, the table, the Berkeley brand, the Berkeley reputation, the respect and I presume of the other investigator, the other researchers, and you're able to kind of move people because of that. I provide a skill set that few right. people that work in those agencies have. So right. it's a desired trait to say like, oh, that person can do genetics. They can tell us how are the frogs? What are the different groupings of them? What are their different groupings? genetically. We don't want to mix really, really things that have been really, really far apart for hundreds of thousands of years as we move animals around to sort of bolster their populations. So my projects, they're actively involved in what's called a translocations or reintroductions. Mm -hmm. So when there's a a population of frogs that are declining, they might supplement them with frogs from other places. And so they'll literally fly frogs in to these lakes and release them to sort of bolster the populations. But when you start moving animals around, you start messing around with their genetics. And so that can have some pretty big consequences down down the line. Main thing is inbreeding or whether or not that's going to impact their their health overall. So mm-hmm. we give them a baseline to work with. So we can do the genetics and give them a baseline to say like, oh, these frogs are really different than those frogs. We probably don't want to mix them even though there's enough of them. Interesting. So from their perspective, they're the same and you're the one who is actually providing the expertise that there's a significant difference here and they're not solving the problem. At baseline, these people know they're not the same, right. but they don't have the data in hand to say, where they're not the same. Got it. We provide that and and sort of give them recommendations to what to do. So give me a picture of terms of partnerships. Like who are who are some of the most robust partners who take the ball and run with it and are the ones who maybe drag their feet? Are you finding that there are certain kind of, I don't know, certain vehicles, whether it's private or public or agency or certain, I don't know, uh, certain areas that work well and others that don't? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the wild, wild west in terms of environmental <laughs> sciences. The, yeah typical thing is that universities in environmental science typically could work with government agencies and that's okay but there's a lot of private land and there's a lot of private investors and a lot of people that do care about it as a population and and there's few instances that i can see where private people or industry quote unquote Mm -hmm. is working Mm -hmm. with government agencies and universities and in an applied way. That's what I would suspect. I would suspect it would be overwhelmingly public dollars that are kind of funding this type of yes. work. And it's oh, probably yeah. being yeah. driven because of the Endangered Species Act at some point, right, right. at least initially. It, right. And there's definite pros and cons to that. But the Endangered Species Act is not perfect. I mean, right. there's many people that think it needs a reframing. Outdated. Right. <laughs> it's outdated. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not the way that the world works anymore. And it's actually may not be the best way that we can serve species on our planet anymore. Right. 
And so the only other way that many people work in industry and environmental sciences, from my perspective, is in consulting. So consultants that are environmental consulting firms that when a developer is going out and doing an environmental assessment, they're the consulting firm that puts the stamp on that, that developer. I think that there's an opportunity to sort of change the game in that sense and, and get those parties involved because they're important stakeholders to how we're going to deal with it in the future. They have a lot of money too. Especially in California, especially where right. their especially housing in California is or, <laughs> booming. Yeah, they should be part of the process. And it's not always just needing a stamp on the environmental assessment. They might actually care about keeping things good. You know, it's, yeah. it's actually an investment for them to make sure that they're preventative and not just a, a hurdle they have to jump. Let me pivot a little bit to talk a little bit about kind of education and higher education generally and how you're in the midst of it and you're kind of at the pinnacle of kind of where you could be at this point in your life, it seems to me. Talk to me a little bit about what's worked, what you think's worked, what's going well, what's not going well in terms of both, you know, undergraduate education, higher ed, master's programs, PhD programs, what's out there. I'm curious what your take is on things. There's some really antiquated things that happen in, in education right now, especially to prep people for a career in sciences. It's so broad now, and there's so many different opportunities for science that it's hard when many of the mentors and the people that are, when you go through a traditional education, are they're just professors. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. And that's not always the best mentor for right. what a lot of other people want to do. I mean, only few people are going to be professors, and even few are going to be Berkeley professors. Right. My advisor is great. I, I love her. We have a great relationship. The, the buck stops somewhere when her life experiences can't really help me past a tenured track professorship. Yep. So I think that there's an opportunity to sort of think about ways that we revamp STEM education where it's hands-on, apprenticeship-based, where I can get a PhD with somebody that's more up my alley for what I want to do. And it's not about publishing in the highest journals across the land, which Mm -hmm. is currency in academia, but it's not currency if you want to go work for a different company or you want to work in government. It's a completely different ballgame. And those places are hiring graduate students. They're hiring PhDs. They want smart people to work for them now. It's a different landscape for those people. So give me a picture of when you would start that. In other words, for STEM education, are you talking about a hands-on apprenticeship stuff? Is that best suited to doctoral level apprenticeships or are we talking about even younger? I mean, would you have liked to have had something more project-based, something more apprentice-like even in undergrad or in your first graduate degree, you know, like, yeah, because there was a lot of talk about pushing down certainly project-based education, but the whole idea of kind of authentic, performative opportunities for real-world research in elementary education they're talking about that so i'm curious yeah when that would be best introduced to the kind of vision of what you're seeing would be good for stem i mean i think i'm a little biased because i think if you provided alternative opportunities for people all the way down to elementary school or middle school you might spark the interest of somebody to do something different in a way that you know builds their skill sets which is amazing yeah of course in seventh grade i was in a program called watershed which is an integrated program where we didn't have grades. We didn't have main, you know, we didn't go to classes. We just were in this room and we were hands-on. Every other week we'd go out into the stream and do stream field studies, but we learned about the history. We did all these different things that were super alternative to the point where parents would say, oh, I'm not putting my kid in watershed. They're not going to be ready to go to college. They're not going to be ready to go to high school. And it's like, if you get out of that traditional framework, you're screwed for life. Right. And that was like a defining moment for what I'm doing now. When I left Watershed, I realized I could maybe do this for the rest of my life. 
How old were you when you were doing that? I was in seventh grade, so I was probably 12. What were you not doing because you were doing that? What were the kids who were not doing that doing during that time? They'd have 40 minutes of science. Got it. 40 okay. minutes of history. <laughs> okay. You know, separated. And the reason it was called Watershed was because the whole class was based around the Darby Creek Watershed, which was the watershed we lived uh, in. So that's all of the rivers and streams that flow topographically into us. It's all of our drinking water. It's everything. So you learned about the history of the area through what was happened in your backyard and talking about all the people and cultural experiences that happened in on that landscape. And then you learned about all the natural resources and environmental stuff that was within your watershed that included weekly field trips out to learn about the geology, about the streams, about the birds, about the whatever. And then you had a sense of community where you actually engaged and did stream cleanups and met with different people across your watershed, quote unquote. So it gave you a sense mm -hmm. of place, really. You learned all these different skills, your writing comps, right. you know, you did everything but by the book. You definitely learned a lot, but it was just in a different... Sure. It was just hands-on, project-based. There was a real-world focus to the content you were learning. Yeah. And also a responsibility. There's no grades. You know, how are you assessed? Mm. What we had was self-assessments every week. You had a logbook and you said, like, how'd you do today? Kind of thing. That's great. And then your parent-teacher conference was you ran it. So your parent would come in and you'd have to show them what you did. If you didn't have anything, it's pretty embarrassing. Wow. And so it was like a sense of responsibility for the work that you do. So push that up to grad school. Push that up a little bit, this model of apprenticeship, or push this model up to grad school. Give me a picture of how it's working at that level. Graduate school, especially in the STEM fields, like grades don't really matter. No one cares what your GPA is. No one cares right. what classes you t take. Because in order to make the most impactful research, you have to go do research. When people get to graduate school, and I'm surrounded by people that fit this bill, which is that they were the smartest people in their class since day one. All the way up through undergraduate, right. they went and they right. got 4.0, they were whatever, and then they got into Berkeley. And there's about, I don't know, a year of classes. And then all of a sudden you got to hit the ground running mm -hmm. and you got to do research and you got to be independent and you have mm -hmm. to have a sense of responsibility and make your own timelines and mm -hmm. do all these other things, project-based project management. There's people that are just completely wide-eyed and just are not ready for that. Yeah. Even though the whole system has told them they're the smartest people in the room. They're the most equipped to do that. And so it's an eye-opener. It's, <laughs> it's a rude awakening. Yeah. It's an eye-opener. And <laughs> There's a lot of attrition to that because ah. it's hard for them to get to that. Whereas I wasn't that really great at school overall compared to them, but I actively sought out or I tried to find these opportunities for these hands-on projects and research and trying to figure out how I could become the person that you see up there, which is a scientist. So here in China, the education is the stereotype of the Chinese student is very accurate in many ways, which is the majority of kids here are fantastic at doing precisely the task that they are given, memorizing whatever they need to memorize, making sure they're able to take the test in precisely the way that they are kind of asked to do. Yeah. And they do have difficulty. I unquestionably have the best students and I've seen at multiple schools here, the best students I've ever seen in the world in terms of being able mm -hmm. to take on any task. And right. usually the focus is on making sure that they do really well on things like the SAT and ACT because they're looking to go to U.S. universities and consistently scoring better than anybody I've ever seen. And, it, and they also are having that trouble kind of making the transition to a more authentic or I don't know, I hesitate to use the word innovative because I think it's overused a lot, but an innovative kind of approach yeah. to learning where they have to be inventive of their own ideas and then pursue them with, an un, with uncertainty about the outcome and with uncertainty 
uncertainty about whether it's going to be rewarded yeah. or even people will understand what they were trying to do. They have a lot of trouble with that in a right. lot of cases here. So that problem, I think, is exacerbated when you get into the international context, especially the Chinese context. But I'm wondering how yeah. you overcome that. Yeah, I think there's small steps that are actually being taken. So a lot of U.S. universities at the graduate level are dropping the GRE. Mm -hmm. So they don't need it. Mm -hmm. They think it's a poor means of identifying who some of the best students are yeah. going to be. And I think some of those ways of dropping the standardized fashions for which we assess talent can not only break the barriers for others that might not have those opportunities, but reassess what's most important. Like, what's the carrot that everyone has to go for? Because it might not be GPA and GRE anymore. It might not be. You were mentioning earlier that publishing shouldn't necessarily be the gauge of whether you have the currency to be successful as a professor. And yet, we all know it is currently. And I don't disparage any kid who comes to me when they're 18 years old and is saying, you know, I really want to make sure that I'm positioned to be a professor. So I'm focused on this idea of publishing. I have no problem with people who are playing the game that's been given to them. Yeah. And they're doing, you know, doing it well. At the same time, I kind of recognize that it's kind of like that old saying about child abuse, like the kid who was abused <laughs> yeah. as a child is likely going to grow up and abuse their child. How do you stop the cycle of violence? Or this? And right. I'm looking for an answer to that. And we, I guess we talked a little bit about this before we went on the air about the idea of maybe there being a technological disruption coming to this quote unquote industry. But I don't know, is there a, a path from inside? Yeah, I think it's sort of broadening the scope of what your training may look like. There's people that I'm around that are just, they're going to be professors. They're really good at publishing. They're really good at that system mm -hmm. of putting out journals, papers, at one after another. Mm -hmm. It's not like there's not a space for that. Right. Of course right. there's a space. So it's default space for that. But we need to start saying we need to bring on faculty, we need to bring on instructors that form a diversity of options and that they can mentor for that. You know, if you want to go off and be a professor, you can do that and you can be with mentor A. But if you want to go off and you want to work in industry, well, you should have a, an industry partner that is under your best interests. I just think that there's some small things that are happening already, which is really exciting. And that comes from an institutional, from a top down. So many universities are looking for federal funding. And so there's some federal training grants where people can be trained for different reasons. So one of them, which is one of them is that's in our my department uh, and an adjacent department is a training grant for data scientists. So training to be data scientists and using environmental data to leverage the coding and computer skill sets there, which could be really important in different ways. But you get actually paid as a stipend to be a part of this training program. And they match you with outside nonprofits and industries, anybody that might be interested in those kinds of skill sets. So there's things that are happening, but taking that fully and being able to show that that's a successful PhD or that a PhD is not just right. three published papers right. together, that those different projects could actually give you a degree, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think is still lagging behind, right? So I could do that training grant, but if I don't get a published right. chapter out of it, it's more difficult right. to say that I got a doctorate. So <laughs> Right. It raises for me the question of kind of the economic opportunities available to people who get their PhDs these days. I yeah. mean, I know you mentioned a couple of paths. One was, I think you mentioned the idea of consulting, which in my head, when I hear somebody say consulting, I basically think they're working. <laughs> consulting is like a job, but it's usually yeah. like a job that requires more education. So maybe break that down a little bit for me. Like what are the people you know, both at Berkeley and maybe elsewhere, what are 
career paths or career futures looking like? I assume there are a few of them, agency, industry, private industry, academia, but how do you guys kind of define the lay of the land and what the future could look like? The default for many, many people in my position is to go do a postdoc. And that's a small, well, significant raise in in what I'm making now to going to that path. But that's a very, like, I'm going to go do an academic path. You're doubling down on the academic path. You're doubling down. You're saying, I want to do this, whatever capacity. You could end up doing a teaching postdoc where you're more, you're the Mm -hmm. instructor on record and you may end up be able to get a gig at a liberal arts school or what they call like an R2 school. So a smaller state university where teaching and undergraduate experience is is the, the primary focus. And those are great opportunities and people will decide Mm -hmm. that's what they want to do. And that also broadens your ability to be in academia. You're not vying for the top spots, quote unquote, but it's not Mm -hmm. a hierarchy really. It shouldn't be. Right, right, right. And then the other side would be going into government. And more and more, if you talk to government people that work in in the field, if you really want to be at a managerial position in a lot of these agencies, like they are looking for people with PhDs or postdoc experience. So you are a viable candidate. It's the problem is trying to get your foot in the door. So those government jobs are few and far between. It's usually someone who has to retire or a new position. They get federal funding for that to open up, especially at that level. But they're great. They're great jobs in terms of financial stability. You know, you get your part of it, you get pension, whatever. Government job is great. And it does get a bad rap in terms of what type of work you can do. I know a lot of government researchers that do research. They do things just as cutting edge as the next. And they partner with academics. They're not bureaucrats. No, they're not. One of the things is you do have to suss out what each department is different, very different in the way that they were formed and have the baselines for what kind of work you can do. And so you just can tailor what your interests are towards that and which ones you would go for. Yeah. Just a side story as you're talking about this. And as I mentioned, bureaucrats, when I lived in France a long time ago, I remember one of the most shocking headlines that I read as I was going to this international school I was working at one day was I pulled this newspaper out. I read a statistic that 85% of 14-year-olds in France, this is 2002, this is a little after 9-11, 85% of 14-year-olds in France wanted to be, when they grew up, bureaucrats. And I remembered <laughs> thinking, and it's the French word for bureaucrats, which is fonctionnaire, right. which isn't exactly the same as bureaucrat, but it's pretty much a bureaucrat. Yeah, right, And I right. remembered reading that statistic and going, oh my God, I have to get out of this country. This is crazy. That's like, I understand that it's it's great. It's a calling for some people, but 85%. I'm like, yeah. where are the ideas going to come from? Where is the new creative? And at the time I was really kind of judgmental about it. Right, and I've right. since changed my opinion, but it's I'm curious if that's still, if that's kind of what the word on the street is now in graduate schools around the US. Like, is that the best path to head for after finishing a PhD? No, I mean, again, it's it's this is the part where the culture is really difficult to break down because because the people around you, especially faculty and especially the, the, you know, the pretentious faculty, they put a hierarchy to what your life options are. Uh-huh. And some of them, they basically could write you off unless you go for a tenure track position right. Right. as faculty. And anything right. less than that is not the cutting edge. Because right. inherently, if you're not publishing, you're not pushing that small envelope forward of the next steps of science. And quite frankly, that's just a very short-sighted in the way that science operates now Mm -hmm. in our world. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to get around that hierarchy because if you ask somebody that type of person, they might say, well, yeah, you go can do, you can do fine science and, you know, good for government work type of science for those jobs. Right. Or you might be just doing a little bit more managerial work, right? right? Like you're not really doing research. Right. 
Yes. That's the argument. And if that's the sort of outlook, mm -hmm. that could be like not that attractive to people that are young graduate students that don't know what it looks like. They don't realize that the people who are advocating for those things are professors who, quite frankly, are just defending what they did themselves and defending exactly. what they know. And there's, exactly. nothing, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the full panoply of options. Right. And then the other side is that, especially in, in my line of work, I work with a lot of data. I work with a mm -hmm. whole lot of data. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of different smaller programs to sort of transition folks to go work for the tech giants of the Bay Area. And you could go work for Facebook and be a data scientist. Right. You know, right. data is data and the skill sets are very similar. So we'll talk about that. Talk about that a little bit, a type of transition, because I can imagine there are lots of people of all ages, not just grad students, but of all ages who are like going, well, I went to school for this. I learned this. I'm good at this. I've been doing this for X number of years. But boy, there seems to be a calling from data science. How reasonable is it for people who have had, you know, no, even grad students have no, have had no data science background to leap into that? Well, there is like a definite hurdle, which is that you need to know computer coding language. I mean, you right. need to be able to go and get into the, the depths of a computer and really wrangle data and wrangle really, really shitty data. I mean, it's, it's stuff that's <laughs> not cleaned, not been right. you know, processed well, and doesn't play well with your computer. And that's a lot of data science. I mean, that's across the board. And you need to be able to learn how to do that if you're going to be in the STEM field regardless. So I get data right. all the time that I have to wrangle and and manipulate and put into a way that I can form it and then broadcast it out into a beautiful visual that makes sense to what's the right. story. Right. It's the analysis and the visualization. Yes. And the reason why people like PhDs or graduate educators or people, it's because the PhD that what it does do well is teach you how to think and think critically about problem and sort of suss out, troubleshoot, figure out the best way to get there. That just parallels so many other things. If, right. if you love doing puzzles, if you like figuring it out, just figuring it out, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. You just have to sort of hone the hard skills of doing computer work and things like that. But there's so many boot camps now and so many online opportunities that I met people in Seattle that they did their undergraduate at University of Washington and in history, but they just sort of got the computer bug and started learning how teaching themselves and using online coursework and online materials right. to learn it. And then the interview processes for those things right. are the wild, wild west. You know, they don't really care what you got your undergraduate or your degree in. Right. They just want to see, can you fix the problem? Right. So it's kind of wild for as much work that's done on the computer. A lot of it's are, they'll, the interview processes, they'll send you a problem set and they'll say, yeah. figure this out or they'll bring you in. Yeah. So in your experience, how old were you and where and when did you get the data skills? Did you just pick them up along the way too? Was it in grad school? Yeah. Was it younger? I didn't really do much other than Excel basic stuff before I got to Berkeley. Okay. And then I got to Berkeley and I just taught myself. That's part of the process of the PhD too. It's just like... You, so what language do you speak? I, I don't well, I don't speak much, but <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, I work in R, R which okay. is an open source yep. program that, that many people use. Um, it has a lot of different... It started out as a math, like statistical software, but now it's turned into a programming language. And then I dabble with Python. And then I work a lot on the command line. And a lot of the work that I have to do, I can't do on my own personal laptop. So I have to send it to remote computers, clusters of those supercomputers to sort of crunch out a lot of the data that, and analyses that I do. So you have to learn how to work in that environment which is just the command line, which is basically the, you know, moving around instead of your cursor, you're actually just typing in how to get right. to each folder and directory. <laughs> right, 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 right. So why do you use Python versus R? Why was R not enough? 
R is enough for sure. I actually predominantly use R, but Python, a lot of other programmers, bio people that work with data science and, and things like that, they'll build their program in Python. So I don't build programs. I use programs. I'll build little scripts to make things more efficient. So I'll do things that I could, instead of doing it piecemeal, I can make it do a loop. So it does mm -hmm. it all for me. Mm -hmm. But some people build programs in Python and then it's like, well, how am I supposed to use that if I don't know Python? So you have to teach yourself how to just use the program. And that takes a little bit of Python work mm -hmm. to have it play nice with each other. But it's also just building collaborations with people that know a, sh a lot about it. Right. One of my very good friends who you know and have met, Ryan, is a whiz, mm -hmm. a computer whiz, computer scientist. He's the guy that builds the programs. And uh -huh. in my graduate education at Western, when I met him, I just said, I got a problem. I can't, I can't fix it. I don't know how to do this. I, I know what I want to do from a biological perspective, but I don't have the skill sets to do it from a computer perspective. And so we just sat down and he built a program and, and I told him where it makes sense biologically and where he can make it work with the computer. Mm -hmm. And so through those processes and through those things, you work and try and figure it out. And Last semester, I went from that not knowing anything to I last semester, I taught a data science course in global change biology wow. where, where undergraduates had to wrangle data and learn R and I troubleshooted with them. And that was a, a part because I wanted a learning experience to be best way to learn is to teach. And yeah, so, for sure. No <laughs> question. Yeah. <laughs> so for you, that was okay. That was your path. Looking back at it, what would the ideal have been? Would you have liked to have been pushed into that earlier or have that be a fundamental part of maybe even undergraduate education? Or, I mean, I know coding is being taught again as young as kindergarten now with little yeah. turtles yeah. that you program to go yeah. two steps forward and turn left. Right, 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 right. But right. I mean, for your specific path, where would it have been like the optimal place for you to have had a kind of hard introduction to those things? that would have maybe benefited you more now? Once I started, once you, you as a child start, or as a student start working with data or mm -hmm. start or working with things like spreadsheets and such, yep. there's an immediate opportunity to parlay that to computer programming. As much as we implement a foreign language in the curriculums across the board, like in middle school, I remember I started taking a foreign language of you could try out German and French and Spanish and, and whatever, Latin. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like, oh, you have to do a foreign language, which totally makes sense. Right. And it should be. Right. But in the same size, you take math and you take science. And one of the ways to speak in those places is also doing computer science and, and learning those languages because it's part of how you can broaden the way that you think and address certain problems. And, and so as soon as you start trying to build a new language outside that immediate language, I think you should bring in computers and computer science. It's just the way of the world. It's just the way that we're going to be doing things. And there's so many applicable skills. And even if you don't like it, just people stop taking Spanish after high school. So sure, 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 sure. All right. So good. So I got a couple more questions for you. And then I know you yeah. got to go. One of them is about you yourself. What kind of sources of information do you read regularly? Where do you get your information kind of outside, maybe more broadly than just in your field? But where do you look for kind of reliable, good information about what's happening in your field and maybe beyond in the fields that, you know, are adjacent to you. For me, the number one source of information is Twitter, to be honest. Wow. I follow hundreds of different people on Twitter from science-based to just regular news. And that's where I get mine to just sort of have a stream of news coming in. And then if I'm interested in an article, I can click it and, and read the article. But mm -hmm. way the ways that I've always set this up as I've moved around the country is that I follow New York Times, Washington Post, and then whatever my local newspaper is. And those are the ones that I really just grab what's going on. 
And then for my science stuff, there's every journal has its own Twitter account and will put out the newest journals. And it's like the table of contents, basically, of it. You do that through Twitter, too. That's yes, through Twitter yes. as well for this. All the major, the big name journals definitely have their own Twitter first and, and things like that. But I also follow colleagues and colleagues will post their papers that they've published and other people's papers that they've published. And, right. And things like that. But then outside of that, it's just from those writers of those major newspapers. I'll follow them individually and they'll put out different types of things. But So I know people have Twitter. There are those Twitter lists that people come out mm. with of like things you can subscribe to a list. Are you familiar with those? And do you use any of those? I'm familiar with them, but I don't use them. So maybe okay. I'm just ignorant to the, the purposes of them outside of just that they're a list of people well, to I follow. Well, I mean, for but, example, if people yeah. listening to this podcast wanted to subscribe to your list of the things that you subscribe mm. to, is that something that you aggregate and put out there? Or is that something that you subscribe to others who aggregate and put out their lists of particularly interesting, I don't know, you know, genetics research fields or something along those lines? I don't use that. I, I, I will say that okay. I don't, I, I, uh, it's only recently that I've actually had tried to have an active presence in Twitter in terms of okay. promoting myself and promoting my work. Um, it's right. been a weird place as a scientist to try to use Twitter. I'm definitely not. Well, it's very a traditional publication site. Yes, but there's a lot of studies that show that have come out that show that if you have a certain number of reach of your followers, that spikes your publications. So the amount of things that get cited and and things like that, other than just just putting it out. So science and Twitter are becoming a place, social media in general, becoming a place where it's actually a way to, to boost where your publications and where your work gets broadcast to. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. It makes well, sense, let me ask you but one more. scientists yeah, are bad at yeah. it. So. Oh, I'm sure. Everybody's, everybody's making this up as they go. I don't yeah, think yeah, anybody's yeah. great at it. They're all learn everybody's learning as they go. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you one more sure. question. I know you got to go, and it's and I I appreciate you tolerating the interruptions that we've had between yeah, China no and worries. the U.S. this time. But but my last question is this: If you had I don't know, let's say you had a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars to spend, you were an investor, and you were going to invest in something that you think is up and coming in science or in your area in your field, what would you be? What would you put your money toward? Ooh. So again, I mean, I, I'm interested in diseases and th its impacts on on, on mm -hmm. human systems, and, and they're just such an integral part to how things operate. There's just the pathogens that are pathogens and those that are actually helpful for us. You know, there's a whole movement of microbiome research and then what you eat and how healthy you can be, and that's just in any capacity now. I think if there's a lot of efforts to do sort of global surveys to see what's there, to use it as fodder for how we can sort of assess how things move around. Pathogens, for me, I think if we could put money into these biosurveillance and our abilities to actually go out and track pathogens as they move through different animals and plants and things, it would give us a way better sense of when, how humans can manage all their natural resources so that they can mitigate them, so mitigate huge, massive outbreaks that are probably going to happen. And so that's, that, and for me, that's cool. using some of the genetic tools. That, <laughs> hey, Andy, thanks yeah. for doing it. This is great. Absolutely. I really appreciate you being on. This has been a fascinating Absolutely. conversation. Okay. If people want to get a hold of you, I mean, you can give me stuff. I'll put it up on the website. But what's the best way to get a hold of you if people want to follow up with questions or comments? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter. Okay. What's your Twitter account? My Twitter handle is at a Rothstee, so A R O T H S T E. So everything but the last the the N on my on my name. And then uh, otherwise, shoot me an email at andrew.rothstein at berkeley.edu. And the spelling I'm sure will be in the podcast itself. So. Yeah, absolutely for sure. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. 
Well, thanks Thank a you. lot. Let's do it again soon. I can't wait to see where you're yeah, headed for next. Sure. It's going to be, be fun. fun to follow. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks a lot. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.